This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Canvas Pop. Canvas Pop makes it easy for you to turn any photo into a piece of art ready to hang on your wall. They can even turn Instagram and Facebook photos into gorgeous canvas art or custom-framed photo prints. If you're anything like me, photos from fishing trips and experiences can tend to accumulate and get lost in the busyness of day-to-day life. When Canvas Pop reached out to me, I realized a canvas print of my fishing trips would be the perfect way to display my photos. Ordering was incredibly easy. I just went to canvaspop.com where I live chatted with Julie from their customer support team. She walked me through the process, helped me pick what size would work best, as well as the best framing option. I even received a proof of what the print would look like before it was sent to print. So if you're looking for a fabulous gift idea for Christmas, if you order by December 17th, your print will be delivered in time to be unwrapped under the tree. Better still, Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code ANCHORED at checkout, or you can visit www.canvaspop.com. I can't wait to see what you get hung up on your walls. Don't forget to use the hashtag CanvasPopAnchored to show off your masterpiece. Larry Solomon is one of my favorite people on this planet. In 1977, he wrote The Caddis and the Angler, the first book ever written specifically to educate the angler about caddisflies and how to fish them. A stickler to detail, Larry is a wealth of knowledge and a genuine pleasure to spend time with. I met with Larry at his home in New York, where he shared some of the history behind his book and gave me a quick lesson on entomology.
were you born and raised? Born in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. Raised in Brooklyn, New York, but always, since I can remember, had a place in the country where there were streams and all kinds of outdoor stuff. Your parents had a place out here? Yeah. My father was an avid golfer and belonged to a golf club, and we, he bought a place, a farm, up in Rockland County, which was about, oh, a little more than an hour away from the city. But in those days, it was the woods and the country. Okay, so did you have any siblings growing up? I had a half-sister. Uh, she was 13 when I was born. So uh, by the time I got the age of reality of the world around me, uh, she had been married and she was off. And may I ask how old you are now? I am 79 at this point, <laughs> feeling still 35, especially when I look at you, April. You know? Oh, I love you, Larry. <laughs> now, when, is you, when are you turning? You're turning 80 in April. We have a birthday a day apart. Yes, I'm the 9th, you're the 10th. Okay, so you'll still be 79 when this is published. <laughs> okay. So I can say that I have your last interview in your 70s. Oh, right, right. Now, what about your dad? Did he fish? No, he did not fish. He was an avid golfer and involved in business and textile machinery. So uh, I do remember when he and a friend of his took myself and the other individual's son fishing, and they just let us off at the lake, and they did whatever the hell they did, and we saw them later. So he was not a fisher person. <laughs> Were you an avid angler all the way up through your teens? Well, I, I guess it started when I was about 10 or 12. There probably aren't that many people who go through the evolution of angling. I started with a stick and a string and a worm, caught my first trout right down the road from the place in Rockland County, Took it back home in a jar, put it in the bathtub, and was very upset when it died. I just couldn't understand it. <laughs> right. Because before I knew anything about water quality. So would you credit your dad to your fishing? Like, where did it come from? No, there? I, um, I met someone up there in the country who wanted to go fishing. I had a, another friend whose uh, parents lived in, in Manhattan, and they used to rent a place right near where we were. And we talked about fishing. I mean, there was a stream that went through which had trout in it right. in those days. And uh, we decided to try fishing. And we knew an older kid who drove. And we could go to Congers Lake, which was a very shallow lake. Loads of bluegills and some very nice bass. And that's where it really started. This little stream with the pin and the string and graduated to a spinning rod. You know, just, just through the whole evolution of the types of equipment. And you got more of an appreciation of the waters around you trying different things. Spinning, no. then plug casting, and a fly rod. Right. <laughs> and then in New York, was the fishing better back then than it is now? Oh, yeah. Why? How? Population. Of trout or people? Population of people. <laughs> right. Development of land. It was the woods up there, which is now an extremely populated area. You know, anything where you get development, you know, proper regulations, environmental impact statements, um, not too many ma people made a big deal about it then. And, you know, just like anything else, it's very difficult, I found, uh, being involved with TGF, to get people to be proactive if nothing's happened yet. Right. And it's one of the big problems with populations. Something has to happen for people to become aware. And unfortunately, it's often a little late or it takes a long time to rectify the problem. So what's the next stage then in your career? And ultimately, just so you know, what I'm really going to try to work up to is your book. 
Because <laughs> it's the first of its okay. kind, right? Well, yes, it was. Okay, and we'll get there because people yeah, are like, what I'm kind of book? Sure. What did he write? Yeah. <laughs> just wait, we'll get there. So at this stage, are you in your 20s? Are you thinking career? Where's your head at? Uh, my head is trying to get through school because people told me I should go to school and go to college and then get a career. Okay. I really did not have a drive for any specific area in particular, just getting through it. And I had a lot of diversions. I was very involved with the outdoors. I loved to hunt, bird hunt and fish and, you know, everything around the outdoors. And that was the fact that we had the place up in the country, the escape from Brooklyn, which was a pretty nice place in the 50s. Uh, 40s and 50s, getting up to the woods, which it was, it was very intriguing for me. I loved the whole atmosphere. Where does this entrance into the industry go or come into play? Well, the industry of fly fishing? Yeah. Well, that I, I can look back probably and see at one point, and naturally everybody reads Field and Stream and uh, Outdoor Life and Sports and Field, we all looked at that. And uh, I remember my, my first fly rod, which... I wanted to fish for panfish because I saw someone at Congress Lake swinging this thing around and I asked him what it was and he told me. It was a hollow metal fly rod, which didn't last that long. <laughs> they break very easily. And, uh, you know, cast a little bug that somebody gave me and the fish came up and grabbed it. And I was intrigued about it. Uh, you know, I guess that, that followed through that everything was a challenge to understand why the fish do what they do, and that got me involved. And I would say the real beginning of my involvement was after college. I had stopped off on the way back from Miami to a girl that I had been going out with in Philadelphia, and that didn't turn out that well at that time, and I got home kind of ticked off and drove up to Junction Pool on the Beaverkill, where the Willery Mock and the Beaverkill joined, and I remember very distinctly, in fact, this was really what got me involved. I got down to the pool about 6.30, 7 o'clock. There was no one there. This was 1960. And uh, I had a few flies, all wet flies. And all of a sudden, fish were doing something in the surface. Some of them were coming out of the surface. And these large bugs were coming off, which I know now were about a size 12 caddis. Maybe, maybe that was the instrument of future developments, but these bugs were coming off and these fish were glumping and jumping out of the water, grabbing them, and it was an amazing sight. And the only thing that I had that was close was a March brown wet fly. And I put that on and I did catch one about 11 inches and I missed another one. And that was really it, where there were maybe 30 decent-looking fish I see now coming up. And as, I, as it got dark and I walked up on, on the road and I just stopped and listened, and all I heard was glump, glump. And I said, there's got to be something to this that I should know. And that was the beginning of my reading and starting to learn about insects, about trout behavior, their environment, and why they do what they do. And uh, that was really the beginning of it. It went from there. What prompted you to write a book about this? <laughs> well, there was absolutely no thought of a book at that time. It was a thought of a challenge and have fun and try to figure out something that I didn't fully understand. About a, a year later, when I got a job in Herman Sporting Goods, a good friend of mine, Harry Fold, was running the fishing and hunting department. 
And uh, he said, you want to go fishing sometime? And I had my little chunky glass fly rod, and we went out, and we saw some fish up a 10-mile creek, and they were raised, coming up to Siberia Hendrickson's, and uh, I didn't have anything that looked on it. He put a fly on it that, that looked on it, and the fish ate it, a beautiful 13-inch brown. I said, huh, why, why don't I have that? And, you know, he tied flies, and actually we ended up sharing an apartment together for about three or four years, and I learned a lot about fly tying. I learned something about what the fish are looking at. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of my trout fishing. And it's just an evolution. Once you learn a little bit about tying this fly, and you read a little bit, and we even opened fish's stomachs in those days to see what they were eating, and you learn a little bit more. Uh, and so the whole process started then. And it was intriguing because I've always, it's, it's always a challenge to me to solve something that I haven't been able to do before or I haven't understood. And that's carried through to all my fishing. The numbers of fish don't matter. It's the process of the angling and figuring out, working a difficult fish. And just, if it was only one fish for that day and it was difficult and I figured it out and I was able to get that, that can make the afternoon to me. Same thing with whether it's salmon or steelhead. That's, that's carried through. Right. Bonefish, uh, tarpon, all of it. The tough fish and the challenging fish uh, are the real reward. But you have to learn to understand the fish, its behavior, its environment, and what it's looking for. Trout are very logical. And through this, I met this old friend who's gone now, Ernie Maltz, who was one of the best all-around anglers that I had ever met. I met him up on the Miramichi, and uh, he, the following spring, he came down while I was on the beaver kill. He says, I remember you. And I was fishing my first cane rod, which was like a noodle. Yeah. Uh, it was an Orvis midge. And he came over and he shook that rod very quickly. He said, this is no good. <laughs> and I had a long tapered leader on. He said, you got to cut the leader down. He cut it off uh, with amazement. I was wondering what the heck he was doing. And when he gave the outfit back to me, what he did was correct. He initiated the flow from line to leader with a proper balance, and the fly turned over a heck of a lot easier. And from him, I started to learn more, and he was the first angler that I had ever met who had caddis flies in his box, the only one, and he had maybe six or seven different patterns. Now, the caddis is the sedge fly, same thing, right? The caddis and the sedge are the same. They call it a sedge in Europe. They no, here they didn't call it anything. Okay. Uh, and the caddis, <laughs> for the most part, don't have common names, like a Hendrickson and a Marth Brown and a Gray Fox, which are often named after people, or I'm not even sure why they gave them those names. Hendrickson was after an individual, Mr. Hendrickson. But um, I started getting involved, and I, I started tying the caddis flies. And I was doing well during catches when other people didn't have the fly. Okay, so it's not like it's being tied overseas. It's not in shops, and there's no books written about it. At that time. There were mentions of sedges in books, but very, very sparsely. So, you know, I had a lot of them. Uh, I had an idea what the fish are looking at, uh, the type of rise and uh, various species, and 
a friend of mine, Eric Leiser, who was a songwriter. He knew I knew quite a bit, and he knew Ernie Maltz, but Ernie Maltz didn't want to write anything. He was more of a hermit than I'd become. And uh, he said, do you want to write a book? I said, oh, I, don't, I don't write that well. I can tell stories well. I tell people how to do things pretty well, uh, suggestions. He said, well, I used to be a songwriter. I said, I can do a lot of writing, and, and you get all the details. So it ended up that we decided to do it. I went down to the Smithsonian and worked with Dr. Oliver Flint, who was the head of Trichoptera, which are caddis flies. <laughs> and he had millions of them on trays, uh, what, all what, different caddis flies. What did he, his job entail? What did he do? Well, studying, identifying, traveling around the world. I even gave him a new species <laughs> when I sent him bugs. I used to send him test tubes full of bugs, <laughs> especially related to one particular species that we couldn't identify because I was only sending him the females of what is now. This is one of the few that they, they uh, have a common name for. The app, they call it the apple caddis because it has an apple green body. But its true name is Brachycentris appalachia. And I would send him all of these little female bugs and test tubes, and he couldn't identify it. And one day I said, Oliver, I'm going to catch every bug that I see, regardless of what it is. And I sent him four test tubes. Right. And he says, we've got it now. The male is two sizes smaller, and it's a dark fly. It doesn't look anything like this. And he said, also, you sent me something I'd never seen before, so we're going to call it Brachycentris solomoni. So oh, seriously? They, uh, they named a bug after me. Yeah? <laughs> and it stuck. <laughs> and um, uh, that, was, that was the beginning. But the, actually, the funny part that people who've gotten the book don't know, uh, Eric was a songwriter, a wonderful guy. He had a, he had a shop, a fly shop up in Westchester. And he said, well, I'll, you know, I'll write an introduction. And I had come back, and when I went down Oliver Flint, I had the names of all of the families, Brachycentris, Lemophilidae, Trichopter, you know, all of them. And I had a, a series of questions with each family that I wanted answered. There were about 20. So I couldn't pronounce any of them, and Oliver Flint showed me how to pronounce them. And we, I mean, some of it was revolutionary as far as what the meaning of the behavior of the fly was to the angler in relation to how the fish responds. So Eric wrote a, an introduction, and the introduction was this young guy's on the river, and he's having trouble. The fish are coming up, and there's a hatch, and he can't figure it out. And he goes to the shore, and he sits down on a log, and he hears, hey, look out. And the guy looks down on the log. It's me, Charlie Caddis. You almost <laughs> sat on me. And they said, well, who, what, what is this crazy? He said, no, no, I've been watching you. You're out there trying to fish, and my cousins are hatching, and you're throwing mayflies at them. And I'm reading this thing, and I say, Eric, I'm, I'm not sure about these. Well, I wrote introductions to each one of the chapters that you've designed. I said, look, you know, I, I think the book is a little too serious for this kind of Jiminy Cricket kind of thing. I said, I want you to send it to Nick Lyons and two other publishers and see what they say. Well, they all came back and said, you can't do that. Okay. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, this is what I'd like you to do. This is the feeling. The guy's out there, and he's frustrated. He walks back to shore, and he picks up a sandwich, and he has a voice behind him. He says, hey, son, I've been watching you. He seems like you're having a little trouble. And here's this old guy, tattered vest with a nine-foot cane rod, 
with a silk line, a tattered hat. And he said, hey, come, let me show you something. He walks him out to the river and he says, you're, you're trying to cast that mayflies. But what's hatching, look at my little friend here. He's got down wings. That's a caddisfly. Let me show you. I have a couple, put one on. He makes two casts. He hooks a fish, and it goes from there. And the kid hooks three or four fish. And then he turns around and says, boy, I really... And he turns around, and there's just mist. The guy is gone. Like Ed Hewitt came out of the woods just to help this guy. I said, Eric, that's the feeling. And he did a wonderful job with that. And so I, I was more dealing with the scientific and insect knowledge and Eric wrote a lot of this type of thing, and it worked very well. No other books had been dedicated just to that subject yet. No, that's not true. Um, Carl, uh, Swisher and Richards were writing a book, and uh, Gary LaFontaine wrote a book right after mine. In fact, he called me several times and looked for information. I gave information to both Gary and uh, also Carl Richards, and uh, they came out with books. Gary's book was... Also very good. Went into some areas that I didn't because Gary had gone in the water with scuba tear and had watched insect <laughs> behavior coming up. I would say the most revolutionary part of the book had to do with the overpositing and how the insects come back. I don't know if you want to get into that. Can you explain just a little bit more about the sedge? I mean, I know not everyone's into entomology. I get that. I respect that. But I am. So, because, ah. I mean, I can tell you a chronomate. I can tell you a midge fly's life cycle. Right. So I'm blue in the <laughs> face. But I know nothing about a sedge. Well, you know, I mean, I guess the trout uh, is what I really focus on in the beginning. Then I got involved with Lennox salmon and steelhead and bonefish and top and which, you know, they go out in different directions and each one has its own uniqueness. But, you know, the caddis in, in difference to the mayfly uh, naturally has a downwing where the mayfly has an upwing. Uh, the mayfly almost always hatches very slowly, gets to the surface. I took some photos in a fish tank and showing the nymph coming up and then uh, again, it's, it's, that's what got me into the flamerger pattern. It's like somebody turns off the nymphal switch, and it's dead in the surface, and the body is hanging down, and the wing case splits, and the, and the uh, insect crawls out and uses the nymphal case as a launching pad. In fact, I, uh, I went over to England and fished with Dermot Wilson, who was the individual who stimulated cats and release in the U.K., and uh, I fished with him on the Avon, and I had, he told me, come on over, we have this very nice mayfly hatch, which was almost identical to our green drake. It was a large fly, hatches about midday over there. So I made uh, half a dozen of my flamerges to the green drake, and I showed it to him. He said, oh, we, we can't fish this here. You know, right. this is dry fly. I said, Dermot, this floats. I said, Let me, let's go out. I say, any fish that rises, I want you to cast your dry to him. If the fish doesn't take it, I would like to cast the flamerger. And he took the first fish. The second one didn't take. I took the next two on the flamerger. And he, he looked around from left to right. And he said, may I try one of those, please? <laughs> I bet he did. <laughs> and I gave, him, I gave him one. He said, but you must never tell anyone that I fished this. And he disappeared down the river. I saw his rod bend, and he came back. He says, a beauty broke me off. 
<laughs> that fly worked very, very well. And what we did, I, um, a physician out in Montana years ago had showed me how to make a stomach pump that does not injure the fish, where the ones that came out had a squeezable ball, but you can't control it. This was made from a 10cc syringe with a piece of surgical tubing uh, epoxied to the end of it. And the edge of the tubing was very well rounded off and very smooth. And you could take a brown trout, anything above 11 inches, and very slowly insert this down and with a little bit of water in it. And when you found a resistance, which is what he's been eating, you press a little squirt in and you take a little suction back and you'll pick up the top two or three flies that the fish has been eating. That was a wonderful learning process. But some people abuse it. And I'm not sure if I would want everybody doing that. But I could see the nymphs splitting their sh their wing cases and the, the wings of the what we call subimago, the, the original fly starting to come out. And that's what stimulated that. And it was uh, it, it's a marvelous type of pattern. If I was only at one pattern, I would probably take that. So how long does the adult sedge fly live for? Well, you know, they... they the adult, you know, they live as a, uh, they don't have the type of nymph to adult that the mayflies have. Uh, they go from a nymph and then they go into a pupa stage. They go into a case for four, five, six days and they transform. And then when it's time, Mother Nature says it's time, they crawl out of their little case, which is also significant because different species have different types of cases and the fish eat them. And they develop these gaseous bubbles under the shuck, which enables them, along with their little legs, they're swimming up. And most of the time, they come up pretty quickly. So when they hit the surface, there are a few species, the Rycophily, you know, I hate to throw all these Latin names around, but there isn't a common name for many. You know, we can call it the Ryak. A lot of people go, well, that's the green body sedge. Well, it happens to be a, one of the green body sedges. Uh, that emerges like a mayfly. Very slowly will drift a few feet in the film. Uh, most of them come up and pop out of the water. When I first, um, early stages of met this old friend, Ernie Maltz, I came down to the pool and he was waving his eight-foot rod in the air, making 15, 20 false casts. All of a sudden, boom, he'd pop it out of the water and he'd have a fish. Well, he was waiting for a fish to rise and then he got his fly immediately on that fish. Well, what is happening is the fly is coming up quickly. A trout will chase it, and most of the times we'll get it. So he figured that, well, the fish has just taken the fly. If I can get mine right there, he may just say, well, there's another one, and take it. Well, it did most of the time. But now and then, because of the fly moving rapidly, the fish doesn't always get it. And they will often stay momentarily looking for it. So if the fish, I've, I've seen the fish rise and then the bug flies away. If you can get your artificial right on that fish at that moment, he says, there it is, boom, you've got the fish. So that's what Ernie was doing all the time, just waiting for the opportunity when the fish came up and nailing it right on his head, he would take that fish eight out of ten times. So that's one behavior. And then the overpositing is something else. Isn't it the sedge casings I see where they make jewelry out of them? 
Yes. Okay. I mean, it's the most incredible thing I've ever that's, seen. That's the the Wirecopula. The caddises or the sedges make their cases out of many, many different things, depending upon the species. You've got on the, the first edition of the book, there's a big limophila day there. Now, you will go into a trout stream, and you will see these inch-long things on the rocks that are made of sticks. Well, that's limnophilidae, and they've made this case, and they're, they're in there. They're living in the case, and when it's time, well, that particular bug is not a great attractor for the angler because in the fall, they just crawl out of the river and the fly hatches. So the fish will pick up that entire case and ingest the case. And if you open the stomach, you'd see all these sticks and stones in there because it has taken the whole case, digested the case, and the worm and pass through the sticks and stones. Some of them are made of pebbles. Ryacopfla don't have a case that they live in till pupation. And then they take all these little pebbles and make all these little cases around them and live in that for a week, and then they pop out. Now, I at a fly fishing show, there was a guy who was raising Ryacopfla to the point where the entire case was there. And then he would take the case out and sort of scoop out the insect and make earrings and necklaces and all different types of jewelry out of the cases. In Tasmania, very... there's an art gallery, and what they do is they have a tank, and it's full of sedges. Oh, sedges. Yeah. And in the tank, they put in a bunch of gold flakes and yes. jewels and stuff. And then they make these cases. They will out of take jewels. whatever is there. It's they're incredible. Yep. They're yep. truly one of a kind. So yep. I tried doing that. I have a, <laughs> I have one of those tanks at home with an aerator. And I went to the river and collected like twenty sedges. We gotta have the right kind of bug. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> it didn't work, Larry. I just killed a bunch of bugs. Right. I feel awful. Yeah, I mean you may have picked up uh, you know, one of the species that doesn't make a case like that. Oh. Hydrocykes who just make a net. All they make is a net. You oh, that's the right so interesting. <laughs> I wonder what that is. I mean, why is it that certain bugs, or is that just that's just nature? Talk to mom. Mom nature. She <laughs> yeah. controls the whole game. <laughs> well, I wish mom nature would take this cold out of me. You're very, very. I'm. I, I'm so sorry that we're doing this. Oh, sick. Come on, I love you. Kid. I can't even. I can't even hide it. Like usually, I can edit out my coughing and my sniffling, but yeah. I can't even edit it out. So oh. sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, okay, so talk to me then about this. What are you calling it? About the you're not saying ovulation. What are you saying? <laughs> no, <that's, laughs> I obviously have got a lot of my mind right now. You know, Oliver, Oliver Flint had all kinds of information. You know, maybe you'd be information and in you'd be interested in the information from the Canadian Entomological Society on ovipositing. I said, well, what did they do? He said, are you well, saying ovipositing? Ovipositing. Ovipositing, which is when the insect comes back to lay its eggs. All the insects come back and they lay their eggs. Some of them lay them on land. Actually, that limnophilidae lays its eggs in the trees that hang over the water, and then the eggs fall into the river. So the, the fish never see the actual bug itself. How many different... Caddis flies oh, are don't there. Ask me that. <laughs> Any idea? Well, you know, there's there's probably a dozen families. Okay. You know, then within the families, there are different species. Right. But it's you know, it's not a, a lot of it is not that important. Uh, I, I would say the key is size, silhouette, and I'm reticent to say color, but I have had situations where 
A small variation in color made a big difference, and it was usually when the water was very, very flat and when it wasn't very sunny because sun washes color out. But you get a gray day, the water's very flat, the fish can just stick their noses up and follow a fly. It's almost like, you know, Charlie, you almost have it right, but not quite, and they'll slip away. Well, that just can drive you nuts. Fortunately, it doesn't happen most of the time. And again, presentation is probably the key to all of it. Coming up, Larry and I continue our discussion. Again, thank you to Canvas Pop for making this episode possible. Made in America, all Canvas Pop prints are hand-stretched by their expert craftsmen in their American production facility. What better Christmas gift for the special people in your life than a printed memory of a cherished moment or fish? Again, don't miss out. Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code Anchored at checkout or visit canvaspop.com. He started telling me about this Canadian Entomological Society, and what they did, they had these, these float nets. They were about four feet in diameter, and they put them on the St. Lawrence River, oh, maybe 50 feet apart, and that whole string of them. And what they would do every day, a couple of times a day, they'd come to these float nets and take the insects out. And what was interesting is you would have a particular species that would hatch, and they could tell that it's a freshly emerged fly. But you would also have the same species that would come back after overpositing, what we call in the same, and this is a real word, periodicity. Let's say the fly hatched at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, and maybe on Wednesday or Thursday, the fly which had swum to the bottom or crawled to the bottom had laid its eggs and is now returning, also at about 3 o'clock. But the difference is it has its wings out, where the hatching fly comes up as a pupa without any wings. The returning from overpositing fly comes back as a winged adult with a shorter body. What does a winged adult look like? Wet fly! Wet fly. In Europe, most of the people who catch fish on sedges fish wet flies. Got it. And so many times they're fishing to returning from overpositing insects. So uh, once he told me this, I, a bulb lit up in my head. I said, wait a minute. You got the bugs that have is a pupa, and then you got the bugs that have wings out. I said, that's a dramatic different silhouette. He said, well, yeah, it is. Now, Oliver couldn't have cared less about how to catch fish. He just cared about identification and behavior. Well, not even that much behavior, identification. And so, uh, you know, I just looked at this and said, well, the fish are seeing an adult uh, coming up as a pupa, and then they're seeing the returning winged insect. Which one are they feeding on? Aha! Now, that comes into the selectivity of trout. Oh, how selective are they? And I've also thought about that. I wrote an article about uh, fishing multiple hatches, and I believe that the insect that a particular fish starts to feed on, he will continue selecting that fly as long as it's available in enough quantity. And once the quantity dissipates and he's still hungry, he's going to go to another fly. So, you know, you could have a, a trout feeding on Hendrickson because they keep coming, and another trout 
five feet away could be feeding on a caddisfly because that's what he started on. And so you might have a dozen fish in a pool feeding and maybe a third of them are feeding on one fly and a third of them on the other one. And you could go around and just change flies and usually pick up the majority of them if you know which one they're feeding on. I mean, that may sound a little complicated as I'm saying it, but it's the selectivity of the fish. And then when one fly is finished hatching, if they're still hungry, they'll go on to one of the others. Right. But, you know, so then I thought about, you know, the returning from overpositing, and I said, geez, you know, these fish are, they may be looking at something very different from what we think they're looking at. We may think they're looking at a pupa, but they may be looking at a wet fly variety. So once I found that out, there was a hatch that was very, very difficult. We call it the, the silly caddis, which is a big gray a caddis fly, uh, Scyllitrata. And uh, I went there the next June. They usually hatched the beginning of June. And along with that fly was another fly that was a little smaller. And I had seen it crawling up my legs and also the rock that I was standing on next to me at one year. And these flies were crawling, caddis flies with wings out, crawling up my waders. And so once I had this information, and the following time I went back, the hatch came off. Uh, I put on the dry fly, the adult, and got no response. And then I had already rigged up uh, a leader with two wet flies. I cast upstream and mended it. I proceeded to catch, oh, six or seven good fish on that. Because what they were doing, they were following the returning from overpositing caddis up that had wings out that looked Maybe to our eye, it doesn't look that much. But when you're looking at a trout who can tell the difference significantly between a 14 and a 16, it will make the difference of a take or a rejection. This is a significant image. And it, uh, it really was mind-blowing on that. So, you know, that's the interest that I've always had in angling, is figuring out the tough stuff and, and just figuring out the behavior. Why does a fish do what he does. And that's that's where I get my jollies when I figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> is there a particular water temperature that sets off any of this? Well, you know, ultimate water temperature is about 60 degrees. Not that much happens when it's under 50. And you really don't want to fish when it's over 70. Yeah, you don't want to fish a trout over 70. And there are some, there are some caddises that hatch right through the winter on a, a balmy day, a little what's called Dola Philodes. It's a little 18, quite often comes out without wings and crawls up on the edge of the ice. Which, you know, in years we don't have the ice flows that we used to, so I don't know where it goes. But right. there are flies that will hatch now and then. Little betas and early stone flies uh, before most of the flies that we expect. So of all the caddis flies, which one has the longest aquatic well, lifespan? Well, uh, <laughs> You know, there are flies that will hatch twice in a season. You get a fly that hatches in late April, early May, and it'll go through a regeneration, and you'll see it in September. A particular species of caddis, and I'm not sure if it happens in mayflies, will have a second generation. It will hatch in early spring, lay its its eggs, and I believe the uh, the same eggs may hatch in September. Now, you know, as I say this, I wonder whether it's the same species that lays its heads at different time of year. But I don't see that fly 
or never used to late in the year. I only used to see it in May. Right. So uh, I've been told, and it seems to be valid, that there's a regeneration of the same species that hatched and laid its eggs in the beginning of the spring, late in the season again. How picky is a trout when it comes to presentation with sedge flies? You know, sometimes yes, sometimes very picky, sometimes not so. If the fly is moving very quickly, it's a sp- more of a spontaneous reaction. And they'll move very quickly and try to get it, uh, especially if there's a little ripple. They're not very picky. If you're close to the size, you've got it. You don't have to worry about color, but um, and you don't have to worry about dead drift that much either. Right. In fact, there are times, <laughs> the, second, the second edition that came out in 90 has some really good information that wasn't in the first. And when I did the first edition, I had seen several insects of different species that hatched and they were crawling on the surface, but they didn't have their wings out. And I said, oh, that's interesting. But I didn't see many. But then I got I got a letter after the first book was out uh, from Scandinavia about a rye cap full of hatch. And it was it was pretty heavy and happened from year to year where the fly hatched without wings and scurried across the surface to the shore where the wings hatched. And he says the trout really came up hard on it. And you could just imagine. And I did see, I didn't see that insect, but the Brachycentris appalachia, the apple caddis that I mentioned earlier, I had a hatch once where they came out and their wings were not out. And they were scurrying across the surface, and fish were just going nuts. I took a regular adult and cut the wings short. Uh, I probably caught 20, 25 fish. Every fish that rose, I put it on and it took. And you can just imagine the fish looking up and seeing these little hamburgers, you know, skittering across the surface. Uh, What a temptation. So, you know... Now, all this information, if you could press the save button in your mind and see various activity of the fish, and if you got a few options to present, that's where it becomes a lot of fun. You know, if they're not doing one thing and you try something else. How do they emerge? Because you know with chronomids how they kind of seizure up mm-hmm. and they kind of, you know, squiggle all the way up. Yeah, yeah. Does the sedge kind of swim up yeah. then because well, it has it, legs? It, it does have long legs. Yeah. And that helps it swim. It's got these little gaseous bubbles that uh, occur under the uh, under the nipple shuck as it's coming up. And the combination of the legs and the bubbles, that's what enables it to come up pretty quickly when, when it does. There are some that don't come up that quickly. And there are also various stages of artificials or of the bug itself because not all of them make it you know you get a heavy hatch you're going to have a lot of cripples and that's i designed a fly called the delta wing which has wings out to its side meant to be fish dead drift and it is wonderful dead drift either during a hatch when you see a fish taking very softly in a very quiet area uh, and you're not sure what he's doing you know and he doesn't take your adult Try something that looks like a spent caddis, and I've gotten some wonderful results on that. How much emphasis do you put on your angling when you see either no activity versus just maybe the tails versus the snouts? Do you gauge how deep in the column you're fishing by what activity you're seeing? Well, at this stage, my range is probably a quarter of an inch in the surface. 
from the surface down to a quarterback, and that's where I want to be. Um, by choice. Yeah, but this is by choice, by selectivity. I, I don't, I don't recommend everybody get there, especially at the beginning. You want to have fun uh, and fish all means. Look, you're going to take more fish on nymphs because fish feed more under the water than they do on the surface. But I'm, I, I'm a visual individual, and I love to. I try to, you know, gear my fishing now to a period when I know or the fish should be feeding in the surface, in or on. And uh, that's my flammerger. It's, it's in the surface and it hangs down a little below. You know, that's, that's about as deep as I like to go. Yeah, you're a bit <laughs> of a purist snob. Oh, oh no question. I remember many, many years ago, I was introduced to this guy, Clyde Baird from California, and he was in fishing with a friend of mine on the beaver kill. And uh, it was pretty sophisticated angle. He had a lot of interesting looking flies. And uh, I was coming down this one run, and I had hooked about a 15-inch fish fishing a nymph down the run. And it took me into the, the pool itself. And I got down there. I looked on the other side. There was Clyde. And he had looked like he had a real good-sized fish, and he was resuscitating it. So I, proud as a peacock as I was, I uh, said, hey, Clyde, how are you? Larry Solomon, you know, we met. I said, oh, yeah. I said, you have a nice fish here. He said, yeah, about 19 inches. I said, oh, great. Did you catch him on a nymph? I caught mine on a nymph. He, he just looked up very smugly and said, I don't fish nymphs. I said, oh, you pompous son of a gun. I've become him. <laughs> Only out of choice. Only out of choice. And I know anyone listening to this is like, did she just call her guest a snob? Oh, we have yeah. fished together. I feel like I fish with you as much as I fish with it. I mean, we fished Belize. We fished the Dean. We run into each other up yeah. north. You're at my wedding reception. Like, yeah, you're a bit of a pompous snob, but you're also... I, I have become... Uh, also, also you know, almost eighty years old. Like it's pretty hard yeah. to give you grief about it. No, I don't give grief. And I, I'm <laughs> but why? What is the fascination? Is it? Is it? Is it because it's visual? Is that why? Well, that's part of it. Okay. Uh, it's yeah. It's the challenge. Uh, the visual aspect is probably the key. Whether it be bone fishing, tarpon, you know, trout. You know, we don't get that with steelhead, Atlantic salmon. Visual when you get a rolling fish, which I mean, I've had. You know, a situation last year was probably one of one of the most gratifying. But that's a visual aspect. You know, you you saw something and you're you're keying in uh, with when you see a fish in the surface, you're keying into that particular fish. You try to understand the, the rise, what the rise tells you. Is he feeding on the surface? Is he feeding in the surface? Does it relate to the stage of insect? Now, you know, this is getting pretty picky. And, uh, you know, I could be called a snob, and that's okay. But I don't, I don't feel that anybody shouldn't be able to do any type of angling within the law and within the rules that they enjoy. Yeah. Now, I've gone through the evolution of all of it, and I just really enjoy and go to the river at the times that I feel fish will be up. Yeah, I'm not going to agree with that. I've stood on a river bank for an hour and a half with a rod on my shoulder and never made a cast. Several times because it never happened, but that's okay. I want you to tell me the top. First of all, did we answer how long a sedge, an adult sedge, lives for? Well, you know, an adult will come up. It could be, it could be a day. It could be four or five days. Okay, so it's that's about what I expected. Yeah. Okay, what are the top three surprising things that you learned about sedge fishing or the sedge itself over the last? 
you know, 80 years. Well, I guess the most dramatic would be the overpositing. And that was very, very dramatic and, and related very specifically on on how the angular should behave. The I guess other than that, the flamurgia, which relates both to mayflies and or even 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 stoneflies, relates to all insects because they all hatch and they all come to the surface. And most of them, when they get to the surface, the mayflies and the stoneflies, the nymph goes dormant and hangs there with part of the body hanging down, and the adult, which is the subimago, uses that nymphal shuck as a launching pad. So it's, it's an image that is very easy for the fish to attack and also to see. You know, a dry fly sits on top of the surface, <laughs> and until it gets into its window, which is where it can see through the surface, it just sees an impression. Anything that hangs under the surface they can see clearly. So there's much more of them to key into as it's coming towards their window. Uh, I would say those are the two, you know, the, the, the flamurgia type of thing on the returning from overpositing, the two keys. Um, other than that, you know, you, there aren't the real selectivity of species like you get in mayflies that may look dramatically different. There's a dramatic difference of families, but within a family like hydrocytes, there are maybe 30, 40 different species. They may have the legs maybe a different color of one than the other and the wings a little different shade. Uh, 99% of the time, it doesn't matter. If you key into size and into behavior and proper presentation. There's uh, an old friend of mine that I just lost this past year, if I can get this right. He was a river keeper on the Itchen for 27 years. Then he moved up to the Tweed in Scotland. I saw him last summer just before he passed, and he had a phrase of what was dry fly fishing to him. Now, I've got it written down below. It's uh, proper observation, proper identification, proper presentation of the proper imitation. That's dry fly fishing. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 